As a medical worker, you love to hear this. Wow, that didn't hurt at all. But sometimes, you just like to hear this. Hey, babe, I know you're out there saving lives. So proud of you. But our little artist wants to show you her painting. Wow, it's a... It's a masterpiece. Connecting changes everything. Learn how with AT&T, nurses, physicians, PACs, and their families get 25% off our vast plans. Requires proof of eligibility. Terms and restrictions apply. Visit att.com slash med for details. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Mornings can be slow going. But a $1 fresh ground coffee at Racetrack to get you going all month long with Racetrack Rewards? Yeah, that tracks. $1 small coffee for rewards members valid August 2nd through September 5th. Limited time only. See store for details. Make tracks to Racetrack for whatever gets you going. This episode, we focus on Liam Plunkett. While never being a star, he's had a really long international career from 2005 all the way through to the last World Cup. So I brought on a Plunkett Ultra to discuss him. Rory Dollard, cricket correspondent at PA News Agency. We discuss how Plunkett is kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure cricketer, the way he changed one-day cricket a little bit, how players from the north of England have been treated, how he had to fight back from the Durham seconds, the whole cross-seam revolution, his filthy wickets, and also black bogeys. Rory, I've got you on because you are the northern cricket whisperer of the (laughs) English press pact. I don't think I've ever seen you more than two and a half beers in before you're abusing someone about the state of cricket in the north, how cricketers from the north are treated And anyone who's ever followed you on Twitter or met you in real life will have heard you discuss Liam Plunkett. So (laughs) explain why, to begin with, you care so much about cricketers in the North. When I was due to speak to you, I I was wondering if I was going to conjure a narrative that gave a very ethically minded uh, or a sporting narrative about why this was not really biased, not really a chip on my shoulder and, and construct some kind of fiction. But that isn't really the truth, I'm afraid. So, no, I mean, I, you know, you, you lean into what you love and you lean into a few things. And actually, I don't really run from that, I suppose. The job of being a, a reporter, a journalist, a correspondent, whatever you want to call it, you have to address things in the right way and you have to give a fair account. But you're allowed to like people. You're allowed to have a personal interest in them. Maybe it's even a good thing, you know? Yeah, I don't hide from that. I've liked people like Liam Plunkett. I specifically like Liam Plunkett. (laughs) And it's because I suppose they don't always get an easy route. It's not quite as straightforward for them. I don't always want to bang the drum too hard. As you say, once I get two drinks in, it can be difficult. But (laughs) it isn't straightforward. It's not impossible because the best cricketer in the world, in the wisdom's view at the moment, is Ben Stokes. And, you know, it's not as though he's been disbarred from performing well on a cricket field. So 
It's not an impossibility, but it's it's not always though there's many voices like that in the room. And we often talk about opportunity coming from, you know, decision makers often like to have a little look in the mirror and, and they, they pick what they know. Mm. And that isn't always people like Ben Stokes, to be honest, or, or Liam Plunkett, or people like me who, who and people I've I've seen in cricket. So, you know, I, I like to see the ones who break through and, and I enjoy them. And I don't really... I thought I wondered if I should apologise for that. And I have no intention of doing so. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it comes down to the fact that the majority of the cricket press live in the South. And that's probably also historic as well. Batsmen have historically come from the South. Bowlers have historically come from the North. There's a whole amateur professional divide. There's a lot of sort of built-in divisions within English cricket. We're now seeing them with black cricketers. We're seeing them with Asian cricketers and probably with women as well. So there's a lot of those things there. Why specifically Liam Plunkett, though? And you can't just say because of how attractive he is. There has to be more to it than just how attractive he is. It's a good one, isn't it? I mean, I am rather enamoured by the whole story, really. You know, was I a Liam Plunkett ultra in 2008? You know, no, not necessarily. I wasn't down at Chester the Street watching Durham Seconds, waving flags and that, you know. so it, But it's, I suppose it's the totality, really. It's the story of how he's found a way to be England's World Cup winner and England's trusted lieutenant in that fantastic summer just gone, what he had to do to get there, the different versions that he worked through. I guess it was an, you know, an unlikely tale. He wasn't really ever supposed to be that guy. Even when he was billed up as a player of great promise as a younger cricketer, it wasn't to do that job and it wasn't to do that job in that team at that time. You know, he... <laughs> All of his success really was was rather unexpected. I also, my first ever England assignment as a reporter was in 2010. And uh, he was on the tour there as a young guy. And I was on my first England beat, really. It was about 27, I think, something like that. And I was a bit daunted, really. You know, it was, a, it was a, not an environment I was comfortable with or, or understood a great deal about. I was finding my way. And I was sitting in the, the lobby of a hotel in Bangladesh, in, in Dhaka. And this England player spoke to me. And he went... How are you finding it, mate? I looked around and it was Liam Plunkett. And I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's tremendous exciting, isn't it? It's, uh, it's fantastic to be around and you know, be around the cricket. I was terribly, terribly polite and earnest in those days, Jared. And um, Liam just looked at me and said, aye, but it makes your bogeys black, doesn't it? Being, being in, the, in the traffic of Dakar, it makes your bogeys black. And I thought, ah, yeah, I can, I can work with this guy. <laughs> he seems like there's something there. I mean, you, you talk about that. I mean, I do try and uh, distance myself from my... The fact that I'm a, a, a Plunkett fan, I suppose, as well as a reporter, but I was queuing to get on a flight once in, I think it was in India, and it was a one-day series when we were, we were flying with the team on their charters in order to, to get round the country. And another reporter was kind of, as we were we were queuing through their sort of uh, slightly legroom-friendly section of the plane, <laughs> as we were sh- shuffling through, somebody delayed in front of us, and I happened to stop right beside Liam Plunkett's seat, and the my fellow reporter thanked him so much for this was just trying to fill an awkward gap, an awkward silence. And he went, Liam, do you know this bloke's always talking about you? <laughs> when when he's sitting down and I'm standing up, there's an unusual anatomical division of space there. And it's not really easy, but I tried to tell him it was all in a healthy balance. And uh, hopefully I'll maintain that healthy balance here. <laughs> I was thinking about him before the podcast. And like on a very basic level, he's big, he's strong. He bowls very fast, not as much these days, but certainly he has bowled very fast. 
uh, and he can whack the ball. He's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure player. Like it's, he, I can understand why you might go, oh, well, he's not as good as Anderson and Broad and, you know, he's not Ben Stokes. But on a certain level, like if you're fantasizing about being a cricketer, a bloke who bowls that fast and whacks the ball, he's kind of a good one to sort of set your sights on, isn't he? Yeah, there is that intrigue in him, I suppose. You know, he is just about, he's probably, I mean, he's taken some good catches, but, you know, he's probably not, John T. Rule, that might be the missing piece of the puzzle. You know, you're not going to... I don't know how much of his career he spent at a backward point, you know. So in the own adventure, that might be the chapter you skip through. But he came right through at the start of T20 cricket, for international T20 cricket. So he's done that. You know, he's been to World Cup's finals in that. He's He's been a World Cup winner. He has briefly had some quite exciting moments in test cricket. He whacks the ball when he fancies it. If there's something you like about cricket, he's probably done it. <laughs> I think he's not a bad fielder. He's almost too big to field, I think. Yeah. (laughs) You could see at another club, he might have ended up at first slip in a Freddie Flintoff type role, and he would have been quite coddled, but it hasn't quite happened for him in his career. Going back when he was young and raw, there was a lot of excitement just about the pure pace, wasn't there? I mean, he Mm. sort of, I'm trying to remember, was he part of the Duncan Fletcher crop of let's just get guys who can wang it really fast? Sure. You know, there was probably less than two years between his Durham debut and and England getting a sniff. And that was the time when Duncan Fletcher and whether it was Troy Cooley also was feeding into that. They wanted big guys and they wanted people who could hit the numbers that they wanted them to hit. And frankly, they'd work out the other stuff at the other end. There was a cart before the horse element to it that, you know, sure, they'd like to get 20 wickets and win a test match, but they knew the method that they wanted to do that. And that's what they were going to hit first. And they might teach you the other stuff as they went. So I suppose he was in that sort of Saj Mahmood mm. bracket, another player who probably who had that. But yeah, that's when we first heard about him, you know. And and yeah, it's exciting. So as a 2005, I'd be at university, and there was a you know there's a young guy similar age to myself who was playing for Durham, bowling fast, hitting the pitch, rattling helmets, and England fancied him. Yeah, I was interested. And I mean, he didn't really make it as a test cricketer in that sort of early period, but it, I didn't look up the numbers, but he must have played a lot of one days between 2005 and 2007. Like, you know, if you were watching international cricket at that point, he was constantly playing for England, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I don't know that he had a really, really long period of bit of first choice, but yeah. but he was always in and around, you know, Chris Tremlett probably was similar. They have this battery of bowlers, I suppose, and you'd always be sure of seeing one or two of them. So yeah, he was certainly a feature of that England team, but I think it's highly unlikely that he really knew his game particularly well. And you say he didn't make a real successful go of test cricket. I think if we watched his first test match, you'd see a guy who wasn't shouldn't have been playing test cricket. Hmm. He was a young, quick bowler who, I don't know, was it Stephen Finn syndrome? You know, it was a young guy with a lot of materials who they were trying to craft into what they wanted on a test pitch. And that's probably not the wisest move in the world and something England have moved away from. You know, I think they like to know what they're getting a bit more. Yeah, he, he was a, a contemporary of Jimmy Anderson, really, and very different, very different kind of player. You know, back then he was bowling quick, but he was bowling full and he, and he and fast and, and he swung the ball as well and very different cricket to what, what we know now, really. Yeah, also in size, like he was obviously tall back then, but when he came back, he was almost a different sort of, physical kind of specimen like you mm. know he, he came back he sort of left as a well like a young steve harmison and sort of came back as a freddie flintoff type body it's like he copied the two other northern guys and swapped their, <laughs> their body but it's, it's an interesting thing because i think a lot of people who follow cricket especially casually think that when you're picked for test cricket you're ready mm. 
And it's just like, you and I know that that is not the case. I remember talking to Mark Butcher once, uh, you know, when he made the pair in the West Indies. And he was walking out the back going, what am I doing here? I'm not good enough to be here. And, mm. and you know, at, at that stage, Fletcher was really pushing, as you said, Troy Cooley as well, really pushing this idea that everyone had to be six foot five and bowl 90 miles an hour. And to be fair, England still kind of believe in that. You know, and they were really, really pushing that. But that meant that people were playing at that level well before they were ready. So he mm. basically disappears. He doesn't really play much at all internationally between what, the end of 2007, and when he comes back to play Test cricket, was it 2013 or 2014? 2014, yeah, 14 yeah. with Peter Moores, yeah. And when he comes back in 2014, he's now coming back. As you said, when he left, he was fast and full. When he comes back, he's almost brought back two bowl bounces. I mean, that yeah. feels like they literally say to him, you're going to be the workhorse. You were just going to bowl a lot of bounces in the middle overs. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, in that period, let's dig a little into it because he didn't just stop getting picked by England. He got stopped getting picked by Durham, you know? He went to play second eleven cricket. And, you know, if you speak to anyone who actually gives up, retires from cricket, who's had an England career, not that many of them go and play recreational club cricket on a weekend because they don't want to be the England guy who everyone's shooting for and mm. giving verbals to. You know, like I've spoken to players who just they'd love to play cricket, but they don't enjoy being the former England guy. Yeah. And actually, so Liam Plunkett was one of the bright, young, hot, prospects and suddenly he's playing second 11 cricket and that must have been a pretty unenjoyable place to be at 23 or 24 you know when you're thinking potentially you're on the wrong side of the roller coaster you've been to the top and you're, you're on a long mm. fast way down so he had to leave Durham really was the, was the answer and he went to Yorkshire and Jason Gillespie got hold of him and actually probably his second chapter was probably down to Jason Gillespie's vision and clarity really of what he saw in cricketers and I think Jason Gillespie gave him a quite specific job, maybe not as specific as England, but he got him back to bowling quick and enjoying himself and ruffling a few feathers. And, and England liked what they saw in that. And yeah, I mean, I suppose he came into a team that had Anderson and Broad doing their thing. And he, that wasn't his job anymore. His job was to be the counterpoint to that. And so he did it. And it was it was brief, I think, because injury struck. But Liam Plunkett, I think, got 13 test caps, maybe 14 in that ballpark, you know. Should it have been more? Well, in his last test match, in his last test innings as a bowler, he got out Muley Vijay, Virat Kohli, clean bowled, offering no stroke, Golden Duck, and then MS Dhoni. So I think there was something to work with. My memory of the test bowling was the nine wickets versus Sri Lanka, where they literally said, just hit the middle of the pitch. And he worked like an absolute dog in that test. And I think maybe even both the tests. Just, and it felt like they were bowling him until there was going to be nothing left of him. Like, it really did feel like that. Another one I remember, and I think it, it goes back to when he, maybe it wasn't when he was first at Yorkshire, but maybe when he first was back on England's radar. He's bowling to Jesse Ryder, and it was really interesting because, obviously, Jesse Ryder, I remember an international cricketer around that time messaging me going, yeah, Jesse Ryder, a year to get ready, he'd still be one of the best batsmen in the world in a heartbeat. And he was terrified of a Liam Plunkett spell. Jesse Ryder never really got terrified of anything. I mean, this is the guy that watched Chris Martin facing over when he was on 99 and laughed at the other end. But Liam Plunkett absolutely worked him over. So it was quite clear that he was fast. But that little period that England brought him back, it felt like to me they were just like, oh, we need a guy for the summer who is just going to pound the middle of the pitch and mm. then we will find a better bowler. So that was the first time where you saw that England were seeing him in these really specific roles and he didn't have anything else to offer. Sure. Yeah, that, well, I think that was the idea. And I think that was probably why he had a little success as well, because they gave him a really narrow job. Stay in your lane, do this. And I suppose there's a bit of 
as a professional sportsman, I imagine there's a bit of freedom in that, weirdly, because it's your choices are taken off the table. Mm. That's what you're doing. You know, you uh, you can just go ahead and do it. And I suppose if, you, if it doesn't go awful too well, then that's on someone else. And if it's on the person who's picking the team, all the better. So it was a narrow job. But, you know, he went to the West Indies the following year on tour in, in 2015. And he bowled like a dream in the nets. Like, watching the nets is a really good thing, isn't it? Mm. It's an unusual level of access that we get across any sport. I've covered England football, and you get 15 minutes to watch them train. And they do so on the furthest away pitch that you can see. <laughs> and they try not to use a football. That's what happens. Cricket, you can watch them for ball one till it's over. And so, you know, you get to see the people who are out the team playing. And in 2015, he bowled fantastically. He, I remember he bowled at Alistair Cook and Ian Bell in the nets. Just ripped them up, ripped mm. them up. Didn't play a test on the tour. That was the end of it, you know. And Chris Jordan played that tour, actually, as a third seamer. Uh, another player who hasn't, I don't think, been given a great crack of the whip by England across the formats. But, yeah, when you say they were looking for a very specific thing at a very specific time, on that tour, they saw Chris Jordan and they saw other things in him that they wanted. And so Liam Plunkett wasn't really there. You know, he worked over the captain in the nets, but I don't think he was in the conversation. Between 2007 and 2015, he plays two ODIs, I think, and they were like a year apart as well. So that it wasn't like he came in for one series. He just wasn't really a factor in, in limited overs cricket. We saw him, like I said, in those test matches. So 2014 was the end of, of those test matches. Took nine wickets against Sri Lanka. I think he played two more tests and, and then he bowled very well in the nets, which only you remember. <laughs> and he plays those two one-dayers. He just wasn't really part of the conversation, was he? Any more than, say, someone like Sarge Mahmood was. Like, it was a name that you remembered. And occasionally you turn on the TV and you go, oh, he's still okay in some random county game. And that was about it. Was He really had faded away as far as an English one-day player was thought of. I actually was at a Yorkshire media day, pre-season media day, when England got bundled out of the 2015 World Cup. So we were crowded around an iPad watching England getting beaten by Bangladesh. And, and, you know, Liam was there in the nets for Yorkshire. And we were watching it. A few, few reporters, a couple of players. Danny Rubin, I think, was there actually at the time, England media manager, then with Yorkshire. And that's how far away he was. England were getting knocked out of a World Cup and he was watching it with me in the Yorkshire nets. So, you know, he wasn't close. And he did actually talk to Owen Morgan, I think it was after that. It could have been just before, could have been just after. And said, listen... Are we done here? Because I suppose he wanted an England career mm. and he wanted to know which team, because he was probably working out that it wasn't going to be both. And he wanted to know white ball or red ball. What am I going to pour myself into? Mm. And I think he was probably erring towards red because he'd had that little bit of success in 2014 and against Sri Lanka and against India. And I think Owen Morgan said, no, st stick with me. We maybe there's a Maybe there's a job. And there was. So my theory is that he wasn't brought back so much as a bowler, even though they obviously thought he had bowling talent. My theory is they brought him back in that period where they were batting him and Rashid at like 10 and 11 because they went all in on the all-rounder option. And then what they did was, and tell me if you think this is wrong, but I think what they did was they then tried to find a role for him within the team afterwards. And it's not that he hadn't bowled. He had bowled some middle overs from uh, Yorkshire because I remember tracking him a little bit. But he wasn't a middle over specialist. And realistically... Before Liam Plunkett, I can't think of too many seam bowling frontline bowlers. Like, yeah, Scott Cyrus is a middle over specialist. Paul Collingwood mm. was, but yeah, as far yeah. as sort of frontline bowlers outside of Pakistan, Pakistan would occasionally have them. 
Hassan Ali eventually did it brilliantly in the 2017 Champions Trophy. But realistically, I don't remember that many like frontline middle overs bowlers. So it's really interesting that they came up with that role for him. The interesting question would be, really, did they come up with the rule for him? Or did he? Just take it over. Did he spot the vacancy? I would err towards thinking he was keen to have an England career. He was keen to be at that level. And, you know, he used to open the bowling in one-day cricket and he, he's bowled Adam Gilchrist with an in-swinging Yorker in the first match of an ODI. First ball of an ODI, rather. So he's done that. But I think he looked at that team, looked at the kind of players they were picking, and he thought, that isn't me, that isn't my job. If I'm going to lock a place here, where is it? It's like when you look in the batting order, you know, and for years with England, it was, if you're a batsman and you want to play for England, you better open the batting, you know, because that's where it's going to be. And I think he looked and thought, where are there some overs on offer for England in the middle of the game? So you mentioned Rashid, his partnership, I suppose, as, as lower order hitters. Well, actually, him and Rashid came, thrived together through the middle overs. Mm. England got to a point where Owen Morgan, fantastic captain, but he almost delegated 20 overs of the match to Liam Plunkett and, and Adil Rashid. He had, no, that was a, an answer to a question that England had been fumbling with for a long time. I suppose they were always accidentally getting overs out of people that they didn't really want to be bowling them and probably England didn't want to be wasting them. You know, it was an unusual thing. And Rashid said, great, you know, let's get loose through the middle. And, and Plunkett found a niche. And yeah, it was, I mean, he did it flawlessly for the entire World Cup cycle, really. Mm. Like that started pretty early in the cycle and it went through to the World Cup final. Nothing changed almost. He just kept pounding away. And everyone, I don't know, people kept thinking it was going to stop. But evidence never really said it was going to stop. Owen Morgan had zero interest in it stopping. and. He was asked always about it, certainly when Joffre Archer was coming through. Oh, you know, who are we going to get rid of? Well, you know, this guy hasn't got many slow balls, not that quick anymore. He's the guy who's going to go. That was the prevailing thought for a lot of people. But that was missing the point because Archer wasn't looking to bowl the overs that Liam Plunkett was bowling for England. That was a job that he had nailed down and actually nobody was challenging for it. Nobody. No, I thought Mark Wood was one. I thought that if they were going to upgrade Plunkett, that made a little bit of sense. But as you said, Mark Wood hadn't done that job. Like, you still have to know that you could do it. And one of the other interesting things is he doesn't have many slower balls, but what he did have was bowling cross seam with a heavy action, a strong, tall guy. I can't think of another cross seam specialist before him. Yeah. Like, it's now a thing you see more and more. I'm, I remember Stuart Broad bowling a lot of them, but no one would have ever said Stuart Broad's a cross seam specialist bowler. But at a certain point, that was what Plunkett did, wasn't it? He yeah, occasionally yeah. bowled off cutters and he occasionally bowled bouncers. But most of the time, he just went back into the pitch, cross seam. Some skidded through, some hit the seam and held up. He also, he, his pace varied slightly accidentally. He didn't necessarily know how quick he was going to bowl. And the variation wasn't, he didn't just bowl 97 miles an hour at some point. That was long gone. And if your pace is varying ever so slightly, and the bounce is varying ever so slightly. And you're pretty accurate. It's not mm. an easy set of circumstances to play against. And I mean, I just think you look at the World Cup final and McCain-Williamson ball. Like, if he could give me five seconds that would say, what was Liam Plunkett's value to England in that World Cup cycle? Gets Kane-Williamson, cross seam, outside off stump, kicks, bounces, gets the best batsman on the pitch. Probably who was going to win the game and mm. the trophy and spin the four years on its head. So he found a method and he trusted it. It's interesting too. I think Usman wrote for Crick Info during the World Cup a piece about... So you talked about the Adam Gilchrist Yorker 
And early on, if you, if you saw Liam Plunkett early on, when he took a wicket, it was often an incredible ball and you could not be excited. Even if you go to that period where he came back in the test team, they were brutish short balls and guys ducking and weaving. And I talked about the Jesse Ryder spell that I saw before. When he came back 2015 to 2019, because he was bowling back of a length, 88 to 91 mile an hour balls, cross seam, most of his wickets are top edges from what looked like poor balls, miss hits out to deep mid-wicket or deep backward square, people dragging balls onto their stumps. You look at that, it's the Benny Howell thing. Well, I mean, let's be honest, I'm as <laughs> obsessed with Benny Howell as you are with Liam Plunkett. It's a Benny Howell thing where like, even top batsmen will say to me, oh, well, like that's just a guy slogging across the line and missing it. And I said, there's a certain point where if everyone's doing that against him, that means it must be the bowler. And I don't think, until Usman had written that, I don't think I ever thought... And I was a huge fan of Liam Plunker. I thought his methods and what he did and, you know, me, I'm all about the different phases of the game. So I was a big fan of that. But even I hadn't put in my head, it's because he's not taking any good wickets. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. The wickets that he used, even 2012 to 2015, if you look at Yorkshire, he was still taking some brutish ball wickets. Suddenly everything looked like a long hop. And it's almost <laughs> like we have to change our mind to understand. It doesn't matter if he does that. You know, Harry Gurney's probably another one there. Literally, it is working for him. And I don't think, that we were ready as cricket fans and cricket media to sort of change how we thought about that yet. I'll tell you what the metric is. I don't have the annals to piece together, but he might not have taken good wickets with spectacular looking balls. He took good batsmen. Yeah. He took good players out. And that's where the team needs you. You know, it's the most simple thing in the world to say, what was the best wicket of the day? Was it the in-swing in Yorker that took out middle and off of the number 11 and splattered everything everywhere? Or was it the top edge out to deep square that got the best batsman on the pitch out? <laughs> you know, that's the one. And you know which one you want. Well, and also I think it's just limited overs cricket. We're now obsessed enough with slow balls that I think slow ball bowlers we can understand a little bit more. But I've been having this debate for years whether the cross seam is even a slow ball because it kind of is and it kind of isn't. But it's so subtle that unless you have a, a ball where you can see a, a rough and a shiny side, you know, a lot of uh, people watching at home don't even pick it up. Mm. Um, and cricketers don't, unless you're a former pro cricketer, you don't even always pick it up. And it's so subtle. But those are the sorts of little things he did. The other thing was, he never made a lot of runs for England. He occasionally played a good innings. He hit that, was it a six against Sri Lanka to tie a game? Yeah, that's ball the match. Oh, yeah. how much fun was that? But essentially, because he could bat, he made the England team that little bit better. So again, it's something that you almost don't see from him, but he did all these little things that actually made the team better. There's, there's a reason that Owen Morgan was always asked about him because he wasn't <laughs> Joffre Archer and you know, he wasn't Jason Roy, but he was the perfect sort of eighth or ninth best player in a team. And that's how you win the World Cup, isn't it? It's yeah. Brad Hogan, 2007 for Australia. Yeah extending the batting just a little bit down the order, being a good yeah. fielder and being able to bowl your 10 overs. Those little things are so important. Yeah, I think the the fascinating thing about Plunkett in the World Cup, because literally books have been written <laughs> about that World Cup, all very good, I'm sure, I have no doubt, but like he shouldn't have been there. Like That World Cup, it was a plan. It was a revolution of thinking. It was a revolution of personnel. It was new method, new blueprint. And this bloke locked down a job in that new team who played in the one day team for the first time in 2005 and played in the 2007 World Cup. Like he was a relic. He was part of the past. He was part of England's inglorious past way before 2015. And, and the whole thing about, about England's revolution was chuck it out. Anderson, broad, gone. 
Bell, gone. Got to go. Got to move on. Got to be a new thing and a new mindset. Sort of completely on the sly and very hardly noticed, really, at the time. This guy who predated the 2005 Ashes found his job and found his role and and played this fantastic part in it. I just think it's, it's wonderful. It's, he was the accidental factor in that thing. He was the grit in the oyster, you know? He wasn't part of the plan. Well, also, there were just little things as well. Remember, couldn't have been long after he came back, and I think everyone was a bit confused with him coming back and, you know, this new role that he had in the team. And then he he gave up the chance to play some games for his wedding. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Like, I remember Adam Vogue just did something similar, and I was like, look, if Michael Clark does that, or Virat Kohli does that, you just like, well, it doesn't matter. They could disappear to start a sunglasses company for three months, and they're going to come back because they are at that level. But when you are that player who has in Plunkett's case, being overlooked and Durham seconds and everything. The ability to just go, do you know what? I think I'm good enough at this now. And I love my future wife enough that I'm just, I'm going to go off. And if you guys change your mind, that's okay. I'm only going to get one wedding day. Mm. I've actually played for England. That was the moment where I was just like, he clearly knows what he is doing. He thinks he is good enough. And also he might just in fact be a very normal human being. Yeah. And as well as all that, which is all true, there was and is a little bit more of a grown-up, mature, rounded approach to this England team and, and a few teams. Australia going that way, seems, as well. Whereby it's become... And actually, the world's tracking in that direction because of all this pandemic. Like, guess what? There's every chance one of my kids should have run in and shouted at some point during this recording because they've been doing it for months. And it's fine <laughs> because <laughs> we've all got lives and people in our lives. And England were right on top of that. And when Plunkett went away and missed those games in Sri Lanka, he did so with not only England's blessing, but with England's encouragement mm. that that was the right thing to do and the right time to do it. And we'll catch you on the other side. And actually, when he came back, he came back, he didn't miss a whole tour. He missed a portion of it, a couple of games. Mm. I think in the first game back, he bowled rubbish. I think that's my memory. And I do have a memory of that. Maybe I'm wrong. But I was like, oh, maybe this is the tip, you know, and it did that. It didn't transpire. But, you know, he, he gave us an interview that when he came back. And he was obviously out in America, Pennsylvania, I think his uh, wife was from or lived there. And he actually was, during that time when he spent away preparing for the wedding, he was preparing and keeping himself up to speed by bowling in a, a kid's baseball oval. He bowled at those batting uh, mannequins that they have, those like those shields that they practice pitching. And he actually, he just about had enough room to get his run-up in to bowl at those uh, baseball mannequins. And so... Yeah, he took a bit of time out, a bit of personal time, but he was on it because he's a bloody hard worker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I just want to go back to the period before the World Cup because this is when you were at your most angry. <laughs> I think we, we, you've, we've now said what a great thing. He shouldn't have been there in the World Cup. What a beautiful moment. Gets Kane Williamson. That's great. I didn't bring you on for the nice times. I brought you on for all the times that you were depressed. So I was working with Melbourne Stars when he was with Melbourne Stars. So what was that? About seven months before the World Cup. Mm. And... He was terrible. I don't know how close they were to dropping him, but I know that their analyst, Rory, definitely suggested going into a game with one less overseas player. He wasn't bowling very quick. Also, thinking back on it, the kind of bowler he was probably didn't suit Australian pitchers as much as it does pitchers around the world. Mm. And also, Tamal Mills had a, a really rough big bash around that same period. It's because There's a lot more guys who bowl 90 miles an hour in Australian cricket, so people are a bit more used to them as well. So he wasn't very good. His pace was clearly down. I mean... 
I know that you at times would admit that through tear-stained <laughs> eyes. I think it was in Chilonka you were you're most angry about that. Yeah. Then there was the Jofra Archer incident, which you mentioned before. So Jofra is clearly in England's best 11 players. I'm not sure that they win the World Cup without him. I think he was the missing ingredient, and they obviously knew. But I, I think some people from outside maybe went, well, this is already a really good team. But I think the one thing that they needed was, was what Jofra could bring in. Mm-hmm. At that point, it looked like he was going to be screwed over. It really did look like he it was did. just going to be pushed aside again after what happened in early in his career, after what yeah. happened in that test comeback. He'd done all the work to get them to the World Cup. Yeah. And I was just like, he's just not going to get picked. He's not even going to make the squad. That was the thing. You know, I didn't think he would necessarily make the 11 every time. And actually, probably, if England's pitches had been exactly what they wanted them to be, then Moeen Ali would have played more cricket. It would have been a bit more spin-friendly. And Moeen probably would have edged out Plunkett for at least a handful of the games that he, that he played. Maybe the final. Don't know. But the idea that he wasn't going to make the squad, I mean, <laughs> that drove me up the wall. I like, and you've had people like just, oh, he's bowling three miles an hour slower than he used to. And he's got hit for three more boundaries than Tom Curran. I couldn't, but like, it just didn't make any sense. Because I didn't, I was going to lie. I was going to say I didn't want him in the team just because I liked him. Right, that's not true. But when you want to move on an established player, right, if it's a player you're taking a little punt on or you have a little look on early in their career, he was that guy once, yeah, you move him on and it's quite easy to do so. If you are going to move on an established first draft lock player, you only do it because there's somebody better in his job. Hmm. You don't drop your holding midfielder because you found another star striker. Right. And that's what England were, were being counselled in some quarters to do was to, oh, we've got another fantastic new ball bowler in Archer. We've got a fantastic death bowler with Archer. So we should move on Plunkett. It's like, well, no, if you're picking a guy for those parts of the game, you lose someone else. You lose someone who is bowling in those parts of the game. And England didn't have someone auditioning for Plunkett's job. So Plunkett drops out the team with my most upset blessing. When Moe and Ali needs to play, fine. Because different job. And, you know, albeit I would admit he probably wasn't as good an off-spinner. But if you are picking another seamer and you want to run through those middle overs and work those portions of the game successfully, then you take Liam Blunkett and you pick him and you let him do it. Yeah, He was an easy target with someone. That's where we get back to the start of the conversation about, uh, you know, maybe there are people who are easy to drop. He has been in his career one of them. And that would have been a terrible time to do it. But even so, so he plays in the World Cup. We don't know how much longer he'll be able to bowl at the level he does, but we do know that he's clearly worked out a method that works. He's still big and strong. He might bowl at 85 miles an hour, but because of the kind of deliveries he bowls, he may be able to keep up his career. England disposed of him again. So we're now on disposal number three Mm. of Liam Plunkett at that point. And I always say there's, there's a weird dichotomy with sports fans. Sports fans are so angry when teams don't do anything to get better. But they also hate when someone who has done all the work correctly is gotten rid of the minute they're no longer necessary. It does feel, though, as you, as you said, that he is one of those players that every time there is a chance to get rid of him, England find an excuse. You would say that is partly because he doesn't have, I would say, the press and the Southern Cricket Mafia on his side. <laughs> well, he went to Surrey. He did his best, didn't he? <laughs> he did do his best. <laughs> He tried. He worked it out, didn't he? Late in his career, he worked it out. He got hold of the top trump card a little bit late. 
But it does feel like at times there are players who have done very well up north that have to come down south just to be even noticed. I mean, Stoneman mm. is, you know, a, a perfect example of those sort of players. In 10 years' time, when you're still moaning about this in bars, yeah, is Plunkett still going to be that guy for you? I don't think it was wrong that he played his last game of cricket for England in the World Cup final. That was fine. And I think probably he's a bit more okay with that than you might expect someone to be. I think it's a real cry and shame that that the transition wasn't managed a little bit more smoothly and uh, feelingly because, uh, you know, the age profile, 35 years old, was he going to be bowling those cross-seamers in a World Cup final in four years? Again, no, he wasn't. There's young players coming through who they are cracking on to, to the job that he did. And maybe the competition there is a bit more than it used to be. So, yeah, fair enough. The fact that he was not encouraged to retire and go out with a bit of a fanfare, because, you know, there was, a, there was a stage for for Liam Plunkett and it was a lovely one. And it was first of the World Cup winning stars, heroes, to walk off into mm. the sunset. And to walk off into the sunset having won because it's, he, he had it rough sometimes in his career, didn't always land where he needed to land. But he did, you know, he, he was fantastic in the final. You know, three wickets in the final, gets like Kane Williamson. It's a fantastic way to go. And if he'd have been told, maybe encouraged even, that we're moving on, we're, we're done here, and thanks, you have the chance to call this one on your own terms. I think it would have been great. I think that would have been a really fitting, nice, and you know, sport's not nice and they're not paid to be nice to each other. I get it. But for the great feeling about that World Cup, that wonderful feeling, I just feel like they missed the chance to put a little bit of icing on the top of the cake there with with Plunkett. But yeah, 10 years time, you'll hear about it. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Cheers, Jared. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season 1 included 11 topics, like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But Season 2 is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil Dolavira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil Dolavira and also delve into Cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams. Sports Social Podcast Network.